Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad you could join us as we study through the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy this exciting teaching. Now let's join Pastor Dan as we study Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, there is, and the reason that we're doing this is there is a rumor that is going around. There are those who are saying that the book of Revelation is hard to under. But au contraire, say we, for you see, the word revelation itself means that something has been Absolutely. If God wanted to conceal something, he would have called this the concealation, not the revelation. So what did God want to reveal? Well, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is a revelation of Jesus. It comes from him, and it's about him. The four Gospels reveal Jesus in his earthly ministry. The book of Revelation reveals him as he is now in his resurrected, glorified state. So it's the same Jesus, but from a little bit different aspect. Now, one of the things I did want to highlight today, because it's going to be important for our teaching, is that you notice it says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Does any of your, do any of your Bibles say revelations, plural, of Jesus Christ? This is a revelation. It is a single revelation, and that'll be important for our study today. It's one revelation all the way through. Now, God so wanted us to read this book that he promised for those who would read it that they would receive a very special blessing, which is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Let's look at it. It says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of, in my Bible it says, the prophecy. How many of your Bibles say this prophecy? Good. That's actually the best way to say it, this prophecy. And heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So it's, it's interesting to me that this is the only book that says, read me, I'm special. There's a very special blessing for those who would read it. It would be very hard for us to believe in a God who says, I want you to read this book. I want you to hear it, and I want you to heed the things which are written in it. But here's the deal. You'll never be able to understand it. It'd be very hard for us to trust in a God like that. So God says, I want you to read it, and, and, and I want you to understand it. Now, there's one thing I need to add to this just before we move on. Uh, it says the words of this prophecy. Did you all see that? Some of us say a prophecy, but, but it's this prophecy or the prophecy. Uh, I'm sorry, the prophecy or this prophecy. And I want you to underline that. Now, now, the reason that's important, because this book is unique in the Bible. Many books of the Bible contain prophecies. For instance, if you go through the book of Isaiah, there are many prophecies in the book of Isaiah. This is the only book that tells us that the, the, that the entire book is a prophecy. This is one prophecy from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of the book. It's this prophecy. So the prophecy doesn't begin somewhere in the book. It begins at the beginning, and it's not prophecies. It's one prophecy. Make sense? So that'll be important as we travel through. Now, God knew that there would be people who would be saying that the book of Revelation is hard to understand. So to make this book understand, understandable, he placed in this book its very own outline, which is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse Let's look at it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. It will be a single prophecy. There'll be three parts. John is told in verse 19, he says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, past tense, the things which are current, and the things which shall take place after these things. So the first part of the book of Revelation, of this prophecy, is write the things which you have seen. So what has John seen up to this point in the book of Revelation? He's seen Jesus resurrected or in his glorified state. Everybody look at verse 13 very quickly. And in verse 13, it will say, In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man. And he goes on to describe Jesus, but it's not Jesus as he was described walking on, you know, in, in, near the Sea of Galilee. This is, this is now in his uh, empowered, resurrected state, how he is now. That's the first part. But then he says, write the things which are, the things which are pertain to a time period that you and I would refer to as the church age, uh, which is found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Jesus is going to dictate seven letters to seven churches. In their order, they will lay out 2,000 years of church history with incredible precision. In their order, they lay out 2,000 years of church history because this book is a prophecy. It's a prophecy. So it starts somewhere and it goes somewhere. 
But then he says, write the things which shall take place after these things. That'll be the third division in the book of Revelation. And the Greek word for after these things is the word metatauta. Now, if you're here today, you're going, do they really know that, those Greek words? Well, yes, yes, actually, we, we do. We, we, we do that. That's what we do here. No, they know, we know one word. We know one word. So, so uh, just, just know that. So after these things. Now, the next time that we're going to see that phrase, after these things, is going to be found in Revelation chapter... 4, verse, let's look at it. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And it goes like this. And you want to underline this if you haven't done it before. After these things. Well, after what things? Well, after the events of chapters 2 and 3, seven letters to seven churches, after those things, John says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place. And then once again, you have to underline what must take place after these things, after these things. So the Holy Spirit so wants to make sure that you and I don't miss that this is the third division in the book of Revelation, that he begins the verse with after these things, and he ends the verse with after these things, so that we would know this is the third division in the book of Revelation. Now, it's at this point where John as a believer, as an apostle, he sees a door open in heaven. The voice says, come up here, and he goes up. It's at that point that the church goes up, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But what's interesting about that is that in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the word church is mentioned over 20 times. But what one word will now not be mentioned from here all the way to the end of the book? The word church. The word church is no longer mentioned because the, because the church is no longer part of the story. Now, at the end of the book of Revelation, we will find after the story, the word church will be there, but it'll be in the closing remarks, no longer part of the story. So the church goes up, and then what comes down? Wrath, which is found in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. Let's look at it. Revelation chapter 6, 16. This is the opening of that time period that you and I would refer to as the Great Tribulation. And here's how it goes. In verse 16 of chapter 6, it says, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, that will be God the Father, and from the, what's that word? Wrath of the who? Now, in the Bible, the Lamb is always... It's always Jesus. You see, right now, every one of us has the opportunity to come to him and receive grace. But there's going to come a time when uh, his wrath will be poured out on those who looked at him in the free gift and said, I don't want it. And I don't want anything to do with you. And they've aligned themselves with his enemy. It's at that time that wrath is poured out. And here's what I can tell you. We'll see that when we get there. It'll be at that time that the greatest revival that the world has ever known will take place. But um, you don't want to be here when that takes place just so you know that, okay? Okay, and we'll, we'll study that when we get there. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 3. We've been looking at Jesus' letters to the seven churches, and uh, we, we find that there, he, write, he dictates seven letters to seven churches, and in their order, they're, they're literal churches. They actually existed there in Asia Minor, modern-day modern, uh, modern Turkey, But uh, they also have a prophetic. They're also laying out time periods in church history. Let's go ahead and put the church map there up there on the screen. You'll remember that when we first began, the first letter that Jesus dictated was to this church called Ephesus. And Ephesus, the word just means darling. Like you you would speak to your wife and you'd call her darling or, or, or honey. It's a term of endearment. And uh, that was his, the, the very first time period, represented the first time period, the early church. We might refer to that as the ap- apostolic age. And it's, it's in that time, he says, you're doing great, you know, you've been faithful, but you're starting to lose your first love. And he gives some, some correction there. And then the next church that he writes is to this church called Smyrna. Now, Smyrna comes from what word? Myrrh. And it's interesting that myrrh is simply an embalming spice. It's how you prepare the body for, for burial. And it was in that church that Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have waves of persecution, and many of you are going to be killed, and you need to be faithful unto death. And it's after that, that first time period in the church that the church goes into 250 years of intense persecution. And, and we all know the stories about how Christians were boiled in oil and fed to the lion and it represents that persecuted church time period. But that ended in the early 300s, and uh, 
The next church that comes into place is called the Church of Pergamum. It says there, actually in the Greek, it's Pergamus, Pergamus. And there came a time in the early 300s when the church became very powerful. It becomes the official religion. And Pergamus, in the original language, is two words. Per means mixed, and gamus means marriage. And so it means a mixed marriage. And it's in that time, the mixed marriage, where they began to follow the teaching of what they called Balaam. Balaam was the prophet in the Old Testament who taught the mixing of true worship with paganism. And as the church becomes the official religion, all of a sudden we see some things entering into the church that come from paganism that you would never find in your Bible. And uh, so, so we looked at that. And that represented the time period from about 300 up until about 600 AD. But then after that, the next church that D- Jesus dictates a letter to is the church called Thyatira. Now, Thyatira was very interesting. Uh, Jesus had a lot of good things to say about that church. It says you're doing a lot of great works. You're even doing more works than you did before, but there's a problem. You're beginning to focus in on a woman, and uh, who you think that woman is is not really who she is. And and it it points to the time where the, the Roman church becomes very, very powerful, and it talked about the things that were going on in that church. So he has a lot of good things to say about that church, but the problem is now they're not focusing in on him. They're focusing in on this woman. By the way, the Bible says that there is one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. And uh, what we find is, is that there are those who are trying to make Jesus' mother now the mediator alongside. It's not what the Bible says. So Jesus says there's a problem here, and uh, you need to fix that. Well, the church that came out of that was the denominational church. You and I refer to that as the Reformation Church. And we looked at that, that church of Sardis. And it talked about you have a name that you are alive. And of course, for those of you who are here, that Greek word for name was the word anoma in the Greek from where we get our English word denomination or denomination. And uh, it laid out a picture of the denominational churches that came out, those great denominational churches that came out of uh, the woman or the church that was focusing in on uh, that, that particular woman. And we'll talk about that as we travel through. So today, we're going to come to the next church. And so we've had some, some bad news along the way. It was Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. And now Jesus is going to dictate a letter to this church called Philadelphia. We're going to pick it up in chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. And uh, here's what it says. So far, so good, by the way? Okay. Verse 7, it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, underline Philadelphia, right? He who is holy who is true, who has the key of David, underline that, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. So there's his opening remarks to this church, and um, the, the name of the church is Philadelphia, and all the names of the churches are important for, for what's going on in the church. Philadelphia just means brotherly love. Uh, Philos is love, Delphia um, is brother, or Delphus is brother, so it just means, Philadelphia just means brotherly love. So does this sound like good news or bad news so far? It's good news. It's going to be good news. So uh, that'll be good. So this church, interesting, I'm going to suggest will come into, it's, it's a little church. It actually existed 2,000 years ago, but it's also going to point to a time period uh, that's going to come into play about 1793, and we'll talk about that at the end of today's teaching. So in this, he writes this church, he dictates this letter to this church, and he says, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he reminds them of his holiness. I I remember when when I was in seminary, I had the church history professor who had a very German accent, and I can't even do it. But he used to say, God is not your buddy. He's not your buddy. He is God. How'd I do? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and the whole thing was that, that we in our Protestant time as we go forward... We forget that God is very holy, and we treat him like he's one of our buddies. He is our friend, and he loves us very much, but he's also God. And uh, he, we need to treat him as holy. And so the reminder to this church is make sure that you're treating him as holy. And this is he who is holy and who is true. Now, uh, true, you could also translate that word as absolute, absolute. We'll talk more about that next week. Uh, but this church, he says, 
Jesus speaking of himself, he says, who, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. So Jesus says, I'm the one who has the key of David, and when I open something, no one can shut it. When I shut something, no one can open. Now, the key of David is not something that we're typically familiar with. It comes from the Old Testament. I put a verse there from Isaiah. You can look it up. But uh, at, at, in the Old Testament, it refers to this time period. Hezekiah was the king. And uh, you can look at this up later. Hezekiah is the king. And uh, he sits on the throne of David. David was the, the first king. And all the kings after that, they sat on what they called the throne of David. It was always referred to as the throne of David. Hezekiah has a man named Shebna who works for him there in the kingdom. And Shebna has this, what's called the key of David. It was a literal key. It was, it was uh, kind of like a rank. And um, with this key, he was over the resources of the kingdom, the treasury, and he was also the one who would grant access to the king. And as the story goes, as the story goes, Shebna's not really doing his job. And uh, what he's doing is he's, instead of uh, overseeing the resources of the kingdom, he's taking the resources of the kingdom and he's building himself a very elaborate tomb so that nobody will forget him. And uh, he's buying himself a bunch of chariots with the resources of the kingdom. And he's being uh, very careful who he lets in to see the king. And uh, so he's, he's buying all of these chariots. We would say modern-day Humvees, that's, that sort of thing. And so finally the Lord looks down and says, you know what, you're not managing the resources rightly, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that away and I'm, I'm going to give that to somebody else. And uh, there in your outline it says, then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder, and he who opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. It's also a reference to, to Jesus coming in the future. But the key of David speaks of access to the king. Go ahead and write that down. And you can read that later on. You can track that down. So the one, Jesus, speaking to this church, the one who has the key of David, he says, when I open something, no one can shut it. And uh, when I shut something, no one can open it. Here's what I'm going to do. And in verse 8, I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. Here's what he says. He says, I know your deeds, and behold... I have put before you, this particular church, an open door, underline open door, which no one can shut. This door is not going to shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word, now underline my word, and have not denied my name. We'll talk about that. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, and I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Underline that. I've loved you. So that's good news. Verse 10, because you have kept, and in my Bible it says the word, underline that, however your Bible says it, or the command of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, um, that's a mouthful. And, and the hard part for me each week in teaching this book is what do you leave in and what do you leave out? So I'm going to hit some things and, and hopefully enough to, to bring some clarity and not give too much confusion. And uh, so you guys pray for me that that, that takes place. Okay? Okay. Um, start, start praying. So, so he says, I've set before you, he says, I've set before you this particular church and open door. This church, whoever, whatever it is, has an open door set before it. So, so what is an open door? Well, when, when you travel through, the, especially the New Testament, but, but uh, what you find is verses like this. It, Paul would say, when he's talking about taking the gospel forward, he, he'll say, there in your outline, he'll say, for a wide door of effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So, so I have an opportunity to take the gospel, but there's some challenges. Um, another time Paul would say, now when I come to Troas for the gospel of Christ and when a door was opened for me in the Lord. So once again, he's taking the, the gospel and it seems as though there's a, an, an opportunity, a door is open so he can do that. So most Bible scholars agree that when it talks about this open door that Jesus has set before this church, it refers to what you and I would call missionary work. Go ahead and write that down. Missionary work, just you, you have the opportunity. One of the things that's interesting, and when we say that, that this refers to a certain time period in church history, it, it was, um, and by the way, Jesus told his disciples there in your outline to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And you, you find in the first 500 years or so, that really takes place. But after about 600 AD, 
it's, it's not really, uh, the gospel's not really going into new places. Not, not that it doesn't, but for the most part, it's, it's really not a major push of the church until the late 1700s. And, uh, and it's in the late 1700s where church history writers and researchers begin to talk about this great missionary zeal that just seizes the church. Um, in Shelley's book on church history, Church History in Plain Language, it says this. It says, at the beginning of the 19th century, Protestant Christianity sc- scarcely existed outside of Europe and America. Asia was almost untouched by the gospel, except for small traces in India and in the East Indies where the Dutch had taken over from the Portuguese. Uh, the sheer magnitude, it goes on to say, of the Christian mission in the 19th century 1800s was without parallel in human history. Uh, just never seen church go um, like, it, you know, missionaries go like that to the point where at the end of the 1800s it says this. It says, by the end of the 19th century, almost every Christian body from the Orthodox Church of Russia to the Salvation Army and almost every country from the Lutheran Church of Finland and the Waldensian Church of Italy to the newest denomination in the United States had its share in the missionary enterprise overseas. All of a sudden, a door is open and people begin to send out missionaries from, from every, every place and to every place around the globe. And that had not happened for a thousand years. In uh, my seminary uh, church history book, which is a great book if you ever, you, you're having a hard time going to sleep, this is the book you want to read. So let's <laughs> let you know that. Um, it says... It says, these discoveries, and they're discovering new lands, these discoveries awakened missionary zeal of William Carey. How many of you ever heard the name William Carey? If you've been around the church for some time, you have. He was a shoemaker and later a Baptist preacher who was to show himself a man of remarkable talents and as a linguist and a botanist, as well as an unquenchable missionary devotion. Uh, he was the first missionary. He was, uh, in, in, is called the father of modern missions. He goes to India in the late 1700s. He learns 12 languages and spends his life ministering there. And it's after him people began to follow his model. If you've ever heard the phrase or the, the, um, the quote, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God, that comes from William Carey, who is the father of modern missions. Well, it's not just him, but people following his lead goes on to say, if I can find it. Okay, here we go. This book says a lot of things if I can find them. Okay. The, the movement led by a number of famous missionary pioneers who followed the example of William Carey, the first modern missionary vanguard. For instance, David Livingston, back in 18, uh, the middle 1800s, was a Scotsman serving the London Missionary Society, brought the gospel to South Africa. Um, the China Inland Mission, founded in 1865 by J. Hudson Taylor. How many of you ever heard that name, J. Hudson Taylor? Okay. And uh, the missionary efforts changed the religious map of the world and enormously extended the influence of evangelicism. Uh, say that fast. Through, the missionary, through this missionary impulse and the foundations of the so-called younger churches. So churches began to, to spring up all over the world through this very, very intense missionary effort. It was in the period between the Civil War and the First World War, the revival emphasis of the American Protestantism was strongly continued by lay evangelist D.L. Moody. How many of you ever heard of that, D.L. Moody? How many of you grew up going to Sunday school? Three of us. Well, that was started by D.L. Moody, who started the Sunday school movement in our country. So all of a sudden, you have in our world this push to send missionaries around the world. And so this open door of, of opportunity appears to be speaking of, of that missionary push. And I'm going to suggest that it is. You also notice, if that's the case, that in verse 9, verse 9, he says, the very last line of verse 9, he says, and I want everybody to know that I have loved you. So whatever this church is doing, he says, I, I really love you. He says, I have opened a door before you, and uh, no one's going to be able to shut this door. What's taking place around the world right now is that that door for missionary sending is closing. That door is closing. 
and it's becoming more and more difficult to send missionaries around the world. But here's what he says. I've set before you an open door and nobody closes. And here's what this means. It means that before that door is closed completely, because he's opened it, Jesus is going to come back for his church. So, so that's on the horizon. And uh, so, so um, he says, I've set before you an open door. So far, so good? Again, what do you leave in and what do you leave out? Verse 8, he says, I know your deeds, and behold, I have put before you an open door and, uh, which no one can shut because you have a little power. I, I love that. Um, we, we read that word power. He says, you have a little power. The word there in the original language is dunamos, from where we get our English word dynamite. So you got a little dynamite, you know, you're pretty good. So that's good. A little pop there. Uh, so you, a uh, little power, and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You've kept my word and you've not denied my name. You notice there on your outline, it says you've kept my word. There, there's going to be an emphasis in this church, and we'll see as we travel through, on keeping God's word. God's word is going to be central to this church. Next week, we're going to look at the church at the very end, that they've lost their emphasis on keeping God's word. In the New Testament, there are two signs for being a disciple of Christ. And I, I put those two signs there in your outline. Uh, one time Jesus is praying and, uh, about his disciples, and here's what he says. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, and they were yours, and you gave them to me. And it says, and they have kept your word. There, there was an emphasis on keeping the word of God. So that's one emphasis, and there's many verses I could point to. But, but the other emphasis here is from John 13, and he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's interesting that the sign of being a disciple is that you're keeping the word, his word, which is what this church is doing, and uh, you have love for one another, which is what this church is named after, Philadelphia, brotherly love. So, so this church is doing what he said to do, and he wants everybody to know that he loves this church. Don't you want to be part of this church? Absolutely. Me too. Me too. And then in verse 8, he says, and you have not denied my name. Now, why does he say that? Well, Peter would tell us in many other places, I'm just going to focus in on one, that in the last days, there, there's going to be those who would come in, and they would call themselves Christians, but they would deny the name of Christ. There, there in Peter, Second Peter, he says this. He says, but false prophets, false prophets also arose from among the people. That's way back when. Then he speaks to the future and he says, just as there will also, underline that, be false teachers among you who will, that's in the future, secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them or denying that they had to be bought by the master, that Jesus had to pay for their, their sins bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Interesting that in this time period where missionaries are going out spreading the gospel, there is a proliferation of new religious groups that profess to be Christian, but they are anything but Christian, uh, which, which led to a term called fundamentalism. Now, how many of you here would call yourself a fundamentalist? Any fundamentalists? Well, I'm a fundamentalist, just so you know. I'm here to put the fun back in fundamental, so, so just so you know. Let me describe it like this. Many of you know my incredible knowledge of sports. Uh, this is a football. That's about where we start. So this is a basketball. At least I know that. And there are certain things that are fundamental to basketball that we would say this is basketball and this is not basketball. So if uh, we're on the court and uh, I want to get this to the other basket and I grab this thing and I put it under my arm and this hand goes out and I start going, uh, what's going to happen? Whistles blowing? Do they do flags or whatever they do? Do they, do they, no, no. Okay. I embarrass myself. So, so that would not be fundamental to basketball, right? Okay, what about this? I get this and I start juggling this from one knee to the other over and then bap into the basketball. It'd be very cool, but would it be basketball? No, and, and I guess once again, whistles, and not flags, but uh, whistles, whistles would begin to blow, right? And uh, I, if I were to stop and say, well, what's the deal? And say, well, that's not basketball. And if I were to say, well, who are you to tell me what basketball is and what basketball isn't? 
I mean, what, what basketball is for me might not be what basketball is for you, and who are you to tell me what's basketball and what's not? To which you would respond, you would say, no, we, we have a book, and uh, the book says that this is basketball, and uh, this is not basketball. And if you do this, it's basketball, and if you do this, then it is no longer basketball. Would you agree with that? Now, it's interesting that we get that in basketball, but when it comes to Christianity, many times people will say, well, who are you to tell me what is Christian or or, or what is not Christian? Well, we have a book, and uh, the book says this is what is Christian, and uh, this is what is not Christian. Make sense so far? So this became so bad in in this time period where missionaries are going out that evangelical evangelicals, people who wanted to take the gospel, began to meet in 1905 and in 1909, and they came up with what's called the five points of fundamentalism. Uh, what is fundamental to the faith? And, and here, here's what they said. They, they said, you know, we, we need to know what, what can we say, this is how we recognize somebody as being a Christian, what are the fundamentals that we say? Because, you know, we do different things. I mean, some of us, we sing from hymn books, some of us do choruses, some of us stand up, sit down, some of us do incense, some of us read from prayer books, but, but what does it mean? You know, how do we know that somebody is a Christian and somebody is not? So they came up with the five points of fundamentalism, which, by the way, has nothing to do with what television tells you is fundamentalism. So far, so good? And here it is. It says, they came up with five fundamentals. It was the verbal inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Jesus, the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement, Jesus had to die on the cross, and the physical resurrection and bodily return of Christ. Now, you don't have to write those down, but but let me just talk about those for just a moment. Christians met together and they said, here's what it means. If you're going to be a Christian, these are the things that we all have to agree on in order to be recognized as a Christian. First of all, uh, the verbal inspiration of of the scriptures. We all have to agree that the Bible is God's word, that the Bible is inspired by God. And uh, Jesus says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You can take it to the bank. So, uh, to be a Christian, you need to believe that Jesus is, uh, that the scripture is, is uh, true. Then, the second thing was the deity of Jesus, the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. All Christians believe that Jesus is God. Every other belief system believes that Jesus is not God, which, which makes us very different. For instance, if uh, uh, some very nice Mormons show up at your house on any given day, they would tell you that we don't believe that Jesus is God. As a matter of fact, we don't believe uh, how you believe about God. We believe that Elohim God was once a man on a planet in the solar system called Kolar. He lived a perfect life, and in living a perfect life as a man, he got to become God of this planet. And becoming God of this planet with his celestial wives, um, and this is their term, not mine, through celestial sex, endless celestial sex, they have repopulated this planet, and he's the God of this planet. Uh, Mormons say that as man is, God once was. As God is, man can become. That you can become a God of your own planet. It's a very, very different God than uh, the God of the Bible who is the eternal self-existence creator of everything. Uh, their God was just a man on another planet. And they said, we don't believe that Jesus is God. He's the spirit child of, of uh, Elohim. If uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your house on Saturday morning, your lights are off, you're hiding behind the couch, but your kids open the door, you know, and you're stuck, you know, which is always happens. The Jehovah's Witnesses show up at my house all the time, and our kids know you don't open the door for strangers. But for whatever reason, the Jehovah's Witnesses show up, and they go, hi, come on in. And Cheryl's always in the shower, so... Uh, but, but they would say, we don't believe that Jesus is God. We believe that Jesus is simply Michael the archangel. He's not God, but he was just simply an angel. Um, the Unity School of Christianity would say, we don't believe that Jesus is God. He's just a man, and through endless, uh, or through many, many reincarnations, he worked out his stuff, and he simply ascended. But we don't believe that he is God any more than, than you are. He's just a man who had been reincarnated and you know, becomes the, the example. So, that's not Christian, and it's not, so this is fundamental, that you believe in the deity of Jesus. So far, so good? The next one would be the virgin birth. Mormons do not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. They believe, and this is, they couch it in very interesting language, but historically, Mormons believe that Elohim 
had a daughter named Mary, because all of us are, are his children. He takes the form of a man, and he goes to her house one night, and he has relations with her so that his son, his spirit son, Jesus, can go into her. So Jesus comes about through the sexual union of Elohim and, and Mary. It's, it's a very, very different thing. Make sense? Yeah, so, so it's, it's very different. So, so fundamentalists said, no, that, that's not Christian. That's something very, very different. Um, the Bible says that Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. It's something that God did um, spiritually. It was not a physical thing, which is why we call it the virgin birth. Then substitutionary atonement. We believe as Christians that Jesus paid the price for us on the cross, whereas the unity school of Christianity says nobody can pay for your sins. What you do is you're reincarnated many, many times to where you become perfect and you work out your stuff and then you just ascend. But nobody dies on the cross for your sins. Um, you know, why would anybody need to die on the cross for your sins? You just reincarnate it. So we believe that, no, Jesus paid the price for our sins. Then the physical resurrection and literal return of Jesus. Somewhere right now, as Christians, we believe that there is a man, there is God right now, and he's in a man's body, and he is somewhere in the universe, uh, whether it's in our dimension or another dimension, but Jesus is somewhere in a physical body, and all Christians believe this. And uh, whereas the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, we don't believe that. We believe that Jesus was Mark, Michael the Archangel, and he just simply went back to being Michael the Archangel. Uh, the Unity School of Christianity would say he was not raised from the dead, but he simply ascended. Just He didn't have to be reincarnated anymore, so he wasn't raised from the dead. So it's, it's very different, uh, which is why in this time period where missionaries are going out, there's all of these other belief systems coming out that deny the fundamental tenets of what it means to be Christian. Does that make sense? Did you find that interesting? Good, 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 good. Okay, so he says, but you have not denied my name. So you're, you're focusing in on my word and you haven't denied my name and you haven't been caught up with that. The next thing he says, and I'm gonna be very brief on this. In uh, verse nine, he says, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, and I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, there, there's some debate on this. I'm going to throw this out because this is where most scholars would hold. There is a heresy that has been perpetuated throughout Christianity that because the Jewish people rejected Jesus as their Messiah, that God is done with them. And, uh, and that we now, as Christians, are now the Jewish race and we, we have all of those promises that God gave to them. And it's just, it's not true. Uh, it's just not true. God has a very special plan for his, his people, the, the Jewish people. And uh, God said in the Old Testament that the end times would be marked by God's people coming back into their homeland and that would mark the final generation. And we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. But Israel would become a nation again in, uh, in the, the last generation. So, uh, but there are Christians who believe that God is done with the Jewish people. That ended 2,000 years ago, and all those promises now go to the church. And when you study your Bible, you find two very, very different sets of prom- promises and two, two very, very different groups of people. We'll look at that as we go. Okay? Like you mean it. Okay. Now, verse 10, I'm going to read on your outline. And he says, now, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about, underline, to come on the whole world, whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, you will remember in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, um, he says here, you know, you've kept, you've kept the word of my perseverance. And in verse 8, he said, you've kept my word. And uh, that's what we're doing here. Remember back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, he says, blessed is he who reads and heeds and, you know, and hears, the under, or hears and heeds the, the, the words of this prophecy. That's what we want to do. We're, we want to do that. We're, we want to keep his word. So he, he, says, uh, he says that uh, this church that he's speaking to, this Philadelphia church, one of the things that we notice in verse 8 and verse 10, and I want you to write this down, that they're emphasizing the word. They're emphasizing God's word. Very important, very important. Verse eight, he says, you've kept my word. 
And in verse 10, he says, you've kept the word of my perseverance. It's, it's the word, what's, what's taking place. And uh, you also notice that God always speaks very highly of people who focus in on his word, the scriptures. As a matter of fact, uh, the Bereans in uh, the book of Acts, he says this. He says, now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. And here's what they did examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. so. So the idea is that they're called more noble because they chose to search the scripture to find their, the truth. So this particular church, the Philadelphia church, is all about God's word. And God says, this is good, and this is what I like to see, and God says, I love this church. That's what he says, is that I love this church. Well, verse 10, he also says some other things. He says, and I'm looking still at the, at the outline, he says, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, here's what I, I want you to know, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That, that word uh, testing, periosmos, uh, means a putting to proof, uh, discipline, provocation, uh, temptation, uh, many times, this, t- this time period that he's talking about that's about to come on the whole earth will be referred to as the tribulation. It will be referred to as a time of testing. It will be referred to as a time of trouble. But it's about to come upon the entire earth. And uh, I find that interesting. And it says it's about to come upon the earth. It says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Now, when we think hour, we think of a 60-minute time period. Uh, that's not what the word means. The, the word there in your outline, uh, it, can mean, it can mean an hour. It can also mean a day. It can mean an hour or it can mean a season. And what we find in the Bible is this time period that's going to come upon the whole earth when we get to it in a few weeks is going to be a seven-year time period. You and I would refer to it as the tribulation. But the part that I want you to write down is that, and what makes this very interesting is that uh, we notice that this is not local, but apparently is worldwide. Write that down. Because I'm going to keep you from that hour of testing that's coming upon the whole world. The whole world. It's not a localized thing. And it hasn't happened yet. Uh, we're going to find that that's going to begin in, in the future. When that begins, here's what it's going to look like, because we read this when we began today's teaching. In Revelation chapter 6, it goes like this. There in your outline, we read it at the beginning. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? This church is promised to be kept from that time period. And there comes a time when God's wrath is poured out on a world that has rejected him. Once again, that'll be the time of greatest revival. We'll look at that when we get there. But this church is promised that they would be kept from that time period, that that tribulation, that testing, that wrath. Paul would say it like this there in your outline. Paul, back in Thessalonians, says, But you, brethren, this is speaking to believers, you're not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. You're supposed to be recognizing when these events are going to take place. And then he reminds the church, and he says, for God has not destined us, that would be believers, for wrath, but for the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The world is going to go in, however, believers are not, those who have have, uh, received Jesus as their Savior. So as a believer, you will never experience God's wrath. Good news? Now, in every church, there is some criticism given. And so here's the criticism given to this church. And write this down. None. There's no criticism. They're keeping the word. It says no criticism. So here's the exhortation, verse 11. And he says, I, to this church, am coming quickly. Underline that. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Your crown is not salvation. Crown is a reward. Your salvation is settled. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him 
the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So to this church, he says, I want you to know that um, I'm coming quickly, however your Bible said it. I'm coming quickly. Uh, That word quickly there, taku, from the original just means suddenly. If you have the NIV version there in uh, verse 11, did it say, I am coming soon? Okay, to this church, he says, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. Now, that's interesting. Uh, Jesus, you can translate that word suddenly or soon. When Jesus comes for the church, it does come suddenly. But to this church, he's also saying it's going to come soon. Soon from world history. Um, we might not feel like it's soon, but it's, it's uh, soon. Now, we keep talking about this church or these churches as a prophecy. The book of Revelation is a single prophecy. So I want to put the map up. What, why we hold that these refer to church ages, uh, not just because of the incredible similarities of what he's talking about to what took place in the history of the church, but that first letter that he wrote to Ephesus, he never mentions his coming back for the church. He doesn't mention it at all. It just, you know, come back to your first love is all he says. The second church that he writes to is Smyrna. He says, you're going to go through intense suffering and you need to be faithful unto death, but there's no mention of him coming back. Then there's that church called Pergamos, that mixed marriage church, and he never talks to them about coming back. But then all of a sudden, something changes. Something changes. And to the next church, the church of Thyatira, he writes, and that's the church that was focusing on a woman. He says that, that that woman is not who you think that she is. And here's what he says to that church. And I want you to notice there in your outline. He tells that, that the church part that focuses in on that woman, he says, will go into great tribulation. That will go into the tribulation. However, not everybody in that church focuses in on that. There are many that just focus in on, on Jesus and they love the Lord and, and uh he tells the rest, he says this. He says there in your outline, he says, for the rest of you, hold fast till I come, till I come. If this church is to hold fast until he comes, then this church has to exist until he comes. If part of this, which is no longer focusing in on Jesus, but on this woman, he says, we'll go into the great tribulation, then that church will have to exist until that great tribulation. Does that make sense? Out of that church came the next church in church history. So this church talks about his coming, and uh, there's good news and there's bad news. But out of that, the denominational church. And here's what he says there in your outline. He says, you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. And we talked about that two weeks ago, because although they reformed many things, they never reformed their, esch- their eschatology, their end times understanding, which is why if you come from a church like that, you've never studied through the book of Revelation because it's just not part of, of the thinking. And so he says the result of that church is they will be surprised. You know, it's going to catch them by incredible surprise. He says it like this. He says, you will not know what hour I come upon you. Now, they're saved. They're just going to be surprised. But if they're going to be surprised, it means that they're going to have to exist even though they don't recognize the hour that he's coming, they have to exist until he comes. Does that make sense? The next church is Philadelphia that we study today. And uh, to this church, he says, I want you to know, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. And it means suddenly, but some of your translations will say soon. I'm, 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 I'm almost there. I'm almost there. So this church is reminded that he is coming If he's coming for them, then they have to be in existence when he comes. Do you agree with that? Now, here's the thing. Next week, you and I are going to look at the last church. It will be the only church that he will have to remind that he is the creator because apparently they've walked away from that. And to that last church, he's going to say it. Many of you know this from the King James, but uh, other translations will say it like this. Like if you have the, the NIV translation, here's what Jesus says to that last church there in your outline. He says, here I am, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Another translation, the Wymouth translation, says it like this. 
I am now standing at the door and am knocking. The church that we study next week is more of the, I'm here, this is the last call. So it's no longer, I'm coming quickly, I'm here. I'm literally at the door. The last four churches, very interestingly, and it's, by the way, that's at the end of chapter three, the last church, chapter four, verse one, door open in heaven, voice saying, come up here. Church goes up. We'll talk about that next week. The last four churches come into existence uh, um, 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 sequentially, one after the other. But all four churches will exist simultaneously until he appears. Does that make sense? The first three churches, it never mentions him coming. But the last four churches, it tells that he is coming for them. So they all have to be in existence when he appears. Does that make sense? We have gone over. I'm sorry for that. Not all that sorry. (laughs) Have you found this to be interesting? Good. Well, uh, next week we're going to pick up the last church. And the last church is absolutely mind-blowing because we see it around us. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Jesus, thank you so much for your word and thank you so much for revealing your word to us. And Lord, as your word teaches that the opening of your word gives light and that we pray that your word is a light unto our path and that you illuminate for us what it is that you'd have us to see. And that we pray, God, that you would give us clarity because we always want to teach exactly what it is that you would want to say. And we want to hold fast to your word. Lord, help us to be the people that you've called us to be in this time period in which we live so that we can be faithful for you. Help us to be examples of grace and uh, patience and love. And Father, for any who are here today who have not yet received you as we unfold these things from this prophecy, we pray that, that, uh, that you would open the eyes and give understanding. And if you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, then here's what you need to do. You simply need to, in your own way, in your heart, in your mind, or with your mouth, just say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I want to be who it is that you want me to be, and I want to be saved. And the Bible says that he's knocking at your heart, and if you open your heart, he steps in, and he never leaves. And Jesus called it being born again. And if that's you today, then here's what we're going to ask you to do. After the service, make sure that you tell somebody that you've invited Jesus into your life today. That you want to be a follower of his. And I pray for the rest of us who know you. Father, help us to live in keeping with the time period in which we live. Help us to be those who recognize that time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. You can find this and other teachings by visiting our website at www.calvarychurchfl.com and clicking the watch and listen tab. If you would like to support the ministry of Calvary Church and teachings like this, simply click the give button on the website. We hope you join us again on the Calvary Church Podcast.